This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. You know, I've been asked how I got to write this book, and I have two answers to that. Uh, one is I've kind of been writing it all my life. I was born in Atlanta, Georgia, um, not a real Southerner. My parents moved from Chicago right before I was born, so we were very much other uh, in those days in Atlanta. It was a tiny place, not what it is now. And um, my mother got involved in the campaign to desegregate the Atlanta public schools. So I grew up around the civil rights movement when um, good and evil and progress were uncontested concepts. And I hated being from the South. I mean, all I wanted to do was grow up and leave and go to New York or Europe, uh, neither of which I knew anything about. But now, looking back on it, um, it was a good time to grow up then and there. And although I wouldn't have admitted it until very recently, I think that was probably the reason I wound up studying philosophy and within philosophy, moral and political philosophy. Um, And uh, so I have to thank my mother for uh, being an example of moral clarity when I was very young. How did I get to Berlin? Well, um, so I was writing a dissertation on Immanuel Kant uh, in the early 80s, and... It was. It seemed like a good idea to spend what I thought would be a year in Berlin learning German, um, learning a little bit about Kant. And it was a time at which uh, almost no Americans who weren't part of the army and no Jews uh, set foot there. And, you know, I kept being asked, what, what's a nice Jewish girl doing going for a whole year to Berlin? And my answer at the time was completely naive. I said, um, look, the war's been over for 40 years. Isn't it racist to uh, condemn the entire German people? Um, So I'm just going to go and think about Kant and Goethe, and that's what I'm going to do. And of course, (laughs) if any of you have been to Berlin, you realize that even back then, when you had a very... um, You know, it was just the beginning of uh, the country coming to terms with its Nazi past. Even back then, um, the war was all over the place. You couldn't escape it. It was all that people talked about. So, and and my first response actually was um, to be both impressed and a little ashamed that Americans didn't talk about the things in our past that are shameful and violent. And it, you know, it, it was a huge contrast. So I, so I did think about that um, for a long time and watched Germany making progress by, um, not by leaps and bounds, by zigs and zags, as President Obama once put it. But... Um, I found my way back to Berlin. I stayed there for six years in the 80s, left at a moment when uh, everybody said, oh, nothing is going to happen here anymore. This was 1988. (laughs) Nobody knew what was coming. But I also had my first child there, and it did not feel like a normal place to raise a Jewish child or even a child who wasn't entirely German. I mean, um, it was a place where it was odd and sometimes difficult to be a foreigner at all, to look non-Aryan. So I uh, went back to the States. I taught at Yale. Um, uh, I was in Israel for five years, and uh, the Einstein Forum found me, um, and it seemed like the perfect job for me, because it involved having a foot in uh, academia, but uh, also a foot in the rest of the world, which I like. And uh, it seemed to me that 12 years after I had left Berlin, 
<clears throat> that I could take, by that time it was three children, uh, I had twins a second time around, um, I could raise three children who would not feel um, uh, that they had to cower, that they had to be afraid, that they had to be in hiding in some sense. So that's a little bit about my um, the part of my biography that doesn't appear on the CV and that in some sense has been um, fueling my interest in these topics for a long time. But the actual... Uh, there was a moment when I decided to write this book and it was standing in my study in June of 2015 crying watching President Obama give the eulogy for the nine people who were massacred in Charleston. And as awful as that was, it seemed to me with someone like Nikki Haley taking down the Confederate flag and Walmart saying they weren't going to sell Confederate memorabilia, I thought, wait, maybe America really is ready to face its past. And actually, this is something that I know something about and could contribute to the discussion. So um, that was the moment at which I started writing the book. And at the same time, uh, Germany had just welcomed one million refugees. And when I say welcome, it's not only that people stood at train stations carrying signs saying welcome, which they did by the thousands. They took people into their homes. They spent time giving people German lessons and helping them with bureaucracy and um, playing soccer and music with the children. Uh, there has been a backlash. We can talk about that later in the Q&A if you like, but the um, ultimate answer is it is still the case that more people are involved in active refugee integration than voted for our right-wing party, and that is good news, and that is Germany has been the most progressive country in Europe because they have done this historical work. Uh, they have a long compound word. Germans like long compound words. Uh, in German, it's called Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung, and I have translated that as working off the past. There are different ways of uh, translating it, but I think that works best. And because of that Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung, um, the Germans have been um, better than anybody else in Europe, not to mention anywhere else, um, with the refugees. And you have to, if you think about proportions, <clears throat> the United States would have had to take in five million refugees in one year on a fraction of the land mass if we were going to um, mirror what the Germans have done. So that's um, just a fact. Of course, as we know, things changed um, from 2015. Um, but again, we can also talk about that. So what I'd like to start off by doing is showing you some pictures. Most of you have probably seen pictures of the Holocaust Monument. Um, what I tried to take a picture that shows this, but it's the American embassy is in the way, that white building on the far right. I wanted you to get a sense of the fact that this is the center of the country. This is not off somewhere in a park. They took uh, a piece of land the size of four football fields in right next to the national symbol, which is Brandenburg Gate, and they put a monument of shame, as they've been criticized by the right for doing, a monument of shame in the absolute heart of the country. It would be, I mean, more than the, the Washington Mall. But it's not my favorite monument. Um, this is probably my favorite monument. Not that many people have seen it. It is the monument to the... 13 million uh, soldiers of the Red Army who fell in the fight to uh, liberate 
the world from fascism. I know Americans think it was done at Normandy and Brits think it was done by the RAF and, you know, all honor to uh, the servicemen who fell there, but it was 13 million Red Army soldiers and 14 million Soviet civilians, and we forget that often. Um, if you get a chance to go to Berlin, I, I highly urge you to go to this monument. I've taken my rabbi there. I've taken a bunch of people there. It is, um, it is emotional in a way that I don't find the, uh, the more famous Holocaust memorial. 7,000 of the soldiers who fell in the battle for Berlin um, are buried here. And what I didn't show is you first you come to a statue, an over-life-size statue of a mourning mother, and then there are weeping willows. And then you come to this sort of arch where um, the soldiers are honoring their fallen comrades. And then you walk through um, a sort of a set of, sarc- I mean, they look like sarcophagi. They're not telling the story of... Um, of the war, don't uh, be disturbed by the fact that the quotes, and the quotes in their sort of bas-reliefs, uh, the quotes are by Stalin, but actually, except for the very first one, which says everything was fine in the Soviet Union until um, the Nazis invaded, except for the first one, everything that's written there is true. So you go through and you um, see this 30-meter statue. I guess it's it's rather hard to see here. Um, I'll show you. Um, so that's about the size of a person. Um, and in one hand, he's holding a sword, which has just smashed a swastika. And in the other hand, he's holding a child who he's saved out of the rubble. Of course, they didn't win um, the war with swords, <laughs> but it's, I find it very moving. But I find even more moving this memorial. Um, this memorial is to the women of the Rosenstrasse. Uh, the Nuremberg Laws, as I'm sure many of you know, forbade marriages between uh, Jewish and non-Jewish Germans. But um, some peoples who had been married before stayed faithful to their spouses, although a lot of pressure was put on them. Um, they would use, usually use, lose their jobs. They would, um, you know, their rations would be cut. It was extremely difficult. But some people remained faithful. And their spouses were not deported for a while. In 1943 the Nazis decided they wanted to uh, do a trial run and see what would happen if they did start deporting some of these spouses who remained married. And they rounded up 400 Jewish men who were married to Jewish women. This is February 1943. It's one of the worst moments of the war. Um, It's also freezing cold. And these women, most of whom didn't know each other, came spontaneously to this place um, where their men were being held, and they said, give us our men back. We're not leaving. And the Gestapo trained guns on them, and they said, you can shoot us. We don't care anymore. We're not leaving until you give us our husbands back. And they got them back. None of those, I guess, 800 people Uh, was deported. They they all survived. And this monument uh, was um, made by a a sculptor who was a child of one of these marriages. And it's a very important and moving story that shows that resistance is always possible. Sometimes people say, well, Gandhi worked in Britain and uh, Martin Luther King worked in the States because we're civilized people. Well, actually, when people are brave enough, um, you, you never know. Don't worry, I'm not going to show you any, all of the, f- I think it's 470 monuments um, in Berlin alone. But I want to show you this one. This is a monument commemorating the book burning in 1933, um, when uh, just a few months after the Nazis took over power, there's a um, 
an inscription by the poet Heinrich Heine, who said, um, "When people start, when they start burning books, eventually they will burn people." And it's an Israeli artist did this. It's a small monument, um, right at the place where the books were burned, um, and it's just empty shelves because they burned many of the great works of. German literature, philosophy, um, anything that was written by a Jew or a communist or anything, anybody else that they uh, consider to be enemies. But you can also see in the background the Humboldt University. And what you should know is that it was students and professors who burnt the books. We're not talking about an illiterate mob. Um, the highest proportion of Nazi party members had university degrees. So uh, it was students and professors burning these books. Okay, last uh, monument slide. This is one of my favorites. If you've been to Berlin, you will have noticed the stumbling stones. They're, well, you can see uh, the scale of how large they are. Um, they were begun by this artist, Gunther Demnig. He's now 70. He still lays most of the stones himself. There's a stone or a brass plaque uh, for in front of houses where people lived who were deported. It has their name, the date of their birth, the date of their deportation, and the date of their death, if it's known. And he insists now that people be involved. If they want a stumbling stone, they have to do something. They have to pay the equivalent of about 120 $125, which is affordable. I mean, we're not talking about a vast amount of money. It's something a middle-class person could decide to do. But they also have to research the history of the person who they're commemorating, and they have to get permission from the city. And people do this. People also deface them occasionally. They sometimes pull them up. Um, but the last time that there were stones pulled up uh, in Berlin, um, more people volunteered to replace I mean, just hundreds of people volunteered to replace them. And those stones were the inspiration for Brian Stevenson's lynching memorial, uh, I, which I hope you've uh, heard about. Um, Brian Stevenson is actually one of my heroes. Um, because he has done, or continues to do, two incredibly important and moving things. One is uh, he fights the death penalty and he actually has saved people's lives. If you haven't read his wonderful book, uh, Just Mercy, please do so. It's fantastic. But the other thing that he does is to connect the racism and... Uh, mass incarceration that we're dealing with today with American history and with our inability to have faced the depth of um, uh, white supremacy. And he told me, I um, went to Montgomery to interview him, he told me, well I went because I had seen something where he said he was completely inspired by Germany and by the ways in which the Germans had changed the iconography um, and he wants to do the same thing in the South. He, um, so there's the large monument, but the large monument has a kind of parallel outside. There's a block for each county in which his institute, the Equal Justice Initiative, has researched a documented lynching. And the idea is that the counties should come back and claim their marker so that along with, if you ever spend any time in the South, you can't go two miles without seeing a sign commemorating some Confederate battle or another. Um, the idea is that the counties should also have these markers commemorating lynchings, and they're doing it. They're actually the counties, the museum only opened last year, and they're doing it. Okay. So... How come the Germans have done all this and we haven't? I know that um, Nazi, Holocaust are often, I gather, not in this crowd. I was just told this is a very educated audience, but 
Um, uh, in many parts of this country, and in Britain as well, Nazi just means absolute evil, without knowing um, anything about how the Nazis came to power, without knowing anything about how um, the Germans have dealt with it in the intervening 75 years. And so the assumption is, you know, the thought is Nazi, cattle car, gas chamber, oven, they must have fallen on their knees the minute the war was over. Um, you know, we do have the picture of Willy Brandt, who was a complete outlier. We can talk about that. Um, we all, in the rest of the world, admired him for showing that there were good Germans, um, even though he spent the war in exile. Um, you know, that there were Germans who felt like falling on their knees and begging forgiveness. He was an outlier, and the gesture was not appreciated in uh, West Germany at the time at all. Um, on the contrary, th their cities had been destroyed. Uh, seven million people, seven million Germans had died in the war. And even though there was some attempt in the first years of the Allied occupation to force Germans to go to concentration camps, um, there, uh, you can see, you see a woman smiling, you see a woman being horrified. People complained about it. They complained about Nuremberg as a case of victor's justice. And their basic view was, we were the worst victims of the war. Our cities were destroyed. The flower of our youth, somebody shaking her head, I know. Um, it took me, took me decades to realize this. Um, I had many friends when I first came to Germany who would tell me my parents were Nazis and they were ashamed. Or my father would never talk about what he did on the Eastern Front and I wish I knew but he would just get angry if I asked. So um, they would tell me that much. But they never said, my parents were Nazis and they thought they were the war's worst victims, which is, um, it was, that was too much shame. So it took me a very long time to figure it out. It was really only when I was researching the book um, that I was reading things written and transcripts and studies done right after the war where this opinion got voiced very often. And then I would ask people about it, I said, really? And they said, oh, of course. Of course we thought we were the worst victims. We were hungry, it was cold, there was no fuel, um, you know, the flower of our men had been uh, killed in the war, people were incinerated in the bombings, and um, on top of that, well, let me show you another slide. Um, by the way, this is, this is not just a view in the late 40s and early 50s. When um, in 1995, at the 50th anniversary of the war, uh, the Hamburg Institute for Social Research, which was actually founded and run by a friend of mine who I interviewed um, extensively in this book, um, decided to do a, uh, a big exhibit called the Wehrmacht exhibit, which broke the war's last, the country's last taboo, because there were 18 million men serving in the Wehrmacht, um, and the line had been, oh yeah, well, we heard about the concentration camps, but um, that was the SS, that wasn't the Wehrmacht. Um, there were a few bad apples. We had uh, trials, we had um, uh, the Auschwitz trials, which made more of an impression in Germany than the Eichmann trial, but it was a few bad apples. And the Wehrmacht exhibit set out to show that actually the Wehrmacht itself was a criminal organization. Um, they violated every law of war. They um, routinely and systematically killed civilians. 
we know that. I felt like it was saying when I heard about it, I was like, oh yeah, like the earth is round or water is wet, you know, this is news. But actually it was incredibly controversial. It was shown in 33 uh, cities in Germany, one place it was firebombed, and there were counter demonstrations. This is what was so interesting. So on the far right it says our grandpa- our grandfathers were heroes. Um, down here it says, um, I, um, I'm standing up for my ancestor. Uh, all he was doing was defending his homeland uh, against the, Nazi, uh, the nasty Bolsheviks, and uh, you're dishonoring my ancestors by showing this exhibit. Who does that sound like? <laughs> And I, oh my God. Um, same kind of language that we have seen in the battles over the Confederate monuments. Exactly the same kind of language. Um, now, the good news in Germany is... You know, 5,000 neo-Nazis demonstrated in Munich, but 10,000 counter-demonstrators demonstrated back. Uh, Fascism isn't an opinion, it's a crime. Um, No Nazis in Munich. Um, At the top, you can actually see the exhibit, and um, a million people came to see it in the various places that it was shown, and were looking to see if they could recognize themselves, if they could recognize their relatives. Um, the exhibit itself became um, subject of documentation um, because people's reactions were so strong. It went all the way to Parliament. Some people argued it should be shown in Parliament. It wasn't. But oh, I should have mentioned actually. Sorry, um, in the in the course of writing this book, I was invited to give a talk at the University of Mississippi. And I'm the kind of person who was, you know, nervous to cross the state line. (laughs) Um, And I went because I thought, you know, before you tell Americans what uh, they should learn from the Germans, actually really ought to see what people who are dealing with American history on the ground are doing. There was a wonderful little institute called the William Winter Institute for Racial Reconciliation uh, based at the University of Mississippi. They're, of course, a tiny minority, but they are working to examine American history and to create social justice. They were responsible for uh, bringing uh, Edgar Ray Killen, the murderer of uh, Cheney Goodman and Schwerner, to trial 40 years later. Uh, they were responsible for some of the, the Emmett Till memorializing. So um, I was fascinated with their work. I loved it, and I asked if I could come back. I said, don't worry, you won't have to pay for me. I'm, I have a sabbatical coming to me, but can I just come and watch what you do and follow you around and interview people and use that as a base for half a year? So I did. But of course, I was listening all the time to these battles over the, this was um, 2017, the battles over the monuments. Um, you, you know, Mississippi, I, I, I should, um, should make it very clear, because I spent so much time in Mississippi and because the book is focused in many ways on Germany and the American South, I don't by any means mean to suggest that uh, racism is only a problem in the American South. Uh, As we know, it's a problem all over the country. But the South won the narrative, actually. And by actually being in the South for two reasons, you can study... American racism and and American attempts to face it in a more concrete way than you can, I dare say, looking at the composition of this audience Um, (laughs) in certain spaces in Southern California or Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I spent, you know, a lot of my time 
Um, there simply are more African Americans in Mississippi, and so race is always conscious. I'm not saying that people know how to deal with it, but it's not something that you can ignore as easily as you can ignore it in other spaces. And the other thing is that Mississippians are obsessed with their history. So while they often get it wrong, you can't say they're not talking about history, they are. And it was there that I realized, you know, One thing we can learn from the Germans is that this is really hard. Even the Nazis weren't ready to face their past. It took a lot of work. Um, Some people think it took a a change of generations, but a change of generations by itself didn't do it. There was a lot of civil engagement by a fairly, I mean... The people who were pushing this when I first came to Berlin in the 80s were basically educated middle-class people uh, in their 20s and 30s who felt terrible about the fact that their teachers and parents had been Nazis or at best bystanders. So they really did this work, but they were called Nestbeschmutzer, um, people who dirty their own nest, There was a huge amount of pushback uh, in West Germany. East Germany was different. I could go into that uh, if you're interested. So we shouldn't be surprised, and this was actually a message of hope to my friends in Mississippi and activist colleagues there um, who have you know, sometimes struggled with despair and how hard it is to get people to actually acknowledge the depth of racism uh, in this country. It was interesting for them and hopeful to them to hear, oh, it took the Germans a lot of work too. And so it's not surprising if Newt Gingrich goes off the deep end when the New York Times Um, initiates the 1619 project, of course there's going to be opposition. Nobody wants to face uh, the shameful things that were done in their name, but they can. So I just want to, before we turn to a discussion, I want to run through a few things that I think are crucial to um, any form of working off the past. One is, of course, questions of justice. In there were the Nuremberg trials. A very small number of big fish were uh, tried, an even smaller number were executed. Most of them got very short sentences that were very quickly commuted, um, and they often went right into the government, um, except at the very top level. Um, that was a sort of unspoken bargain that Adenauer made. We'll pay reparations to the state of Israel and to individual survivors as long as we don't actually have to do any um, we don't actually have to um, get the Nazis out of the civil service, the schools, the police, um, and we don't have to talk about this stuff. So there were very few trials Um, in West Germany. There were quite a few more in East Germany. Um, But there, so here are two rather famous trials. Um, You probably, um, you may not recognize the man here. It was not until, I think, 94 that Edgar Ray Killen, the Klan leader who masterminded the murder of Cheney Goodman and Schroener was actually brought to, to trial, but he did die in jail recently, um, even though people were reluctant to um, try an 80-year-old man and uh, a preacher at that. But as we know, um, there, the trials of other murderers have not been as happy, um, and that is something that we still need to work on. But I want to conclude on a hopeful note because I'm a kind of a silver lining sort of a woman. Um, 
<laughs> and it's been very hard to find a silver lining in the last couple of years. I have been in despair many, many times, and there were moments when I was writing this book where I thought, you're going to write a book. You think it's useful to write a book? I mean, honestly, um, <laughs> this is ridiculous. There's, you know, the situation is too bad. I believe that the, um, the horribleness of the presidency that we're experiencing, hopefully not for all that much longer, the horribleness of it has caused white Americans to realize how deep white supremacy is a part of our history. And it's not that we were totally ignorant. As I said, I grew up during the Civil Rights Movement, but the assumption was, you know, okay, there was slavery, but then we fought a civil war, and there was segregation, but then there was the Civil Rights Movement. And um, I, nobody I know thought that the election of President Obama meant we were going to live in a post-racial future, but we were, you know, the arc was bending in the right direction, right? And suddenly, there's simply no denying that uh, Trump would never have been elected did he not feed on the rage of millions of people who were angry about a black family in the White House and a black family who... You can disagree with this or that policy of President Obama's. I can wish that he did a few things differently. I think he's too much of a neoliberal. But, um, you know, all five of them, including Marion Robinson, the first granny, behaved with perfect grace, dignity, integrity um, for eight years. And it enraged people. I met the people, you know, in the Deep South. I, these are not people. I, I mean, I have friends who are enraged that he was, you know, too neoliberal. But um, I, <laughs> I met people who found it unbearable that, um, you know, basically the Obama family undermined every possible excuse for racism, <laughs> right? You know, I mean, we, we, well, I never felt more proud to be represented by um, an American president and first family. I never felt that in my entire life. Okay. But I really think that the awareness that white Americans are, um, you know, coming to as a result of this monstrous presidency that we're now living under has created... um, an interest and awareness. Remember the 1619 Project. I don't know how many of you have seen it. It's not just commemorating 400 years of slavery. The goal is to retell the history of America through the eyes of slavery. Uh, this is not a blip on our history. This is a fundamental part of um, who we were. And, uh, you know... Um, Henry Louis Gates's book and program on, on Reconstruction, just the very fact that people are talking about Reconstruction. Until I started doing this research, I'm embarrassed to say that my understanding of the period between the end of the Civil War and <clears throat> the Montgomery bus boycott was kind of a big blur. And, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton could say in 2016, and, and, you know, she's certainly an educated woman, she was asked, you may remember, who her favorite president was, and she said, well, Abraham Lincoln, fine, that's a great one to pick. Um, She said, because if he hadn't been assassinated, there wouldn't have been all that mess with Reconstruction and Jim Crow and stuff. Now, three... Years later, you can groan, and that is a measure of the fact that, you know, um, historians have been writing now in um, general publications. Of course, historians knew all the time, but you cannot escape it anymore. It's part of the general conversation. Uh, It's part of the conversation around the monuments, because we know the monuments were put up 
um, in a particular time and place for particular reasons. Who knew? I didn't know until I started doing this um, this research. Um, that is from uh, the 1619 Project, that quote. And I was asked by the editor of um, Distinguished National Publication. Um, she obviously hadn't read my book, but that's okay. She asked if I wanted to write something. There was This was a, maybe a month ago or three weeks ago. Um, there was a Twitter storm. A white guest had complained that she went on a plantation tour and it was her vacation and she didn't want to hear about slavery and why was she forced to do this. And this editor asked, well, would you like to write something arguing that Americans should treat Confederate sites the way uh, Germans treat Nazi sites? And I started thinking about it. I said, Nazi sites? Nazi sites are concentration camps. There is no one, not even our right-wing AFD, who would somehow suggest... Uh, there are pictures of SS guards frolicking at Auschwitz. Uh, you can see them. I mean, people grinning on their day off and picnicking and stuff like that. But nobody would suggest that you know we should go and and have holidays and uh, you know dress up in dirndls the way people dress up in uh, in hoop skirts. I um, I know AOC got into a lot of trouble for calling the camps at the border concentration camps. But of course they're concentration camps. Concentration camp is not the same thing as a death camp, as I'm sure many of you know. Um, there were thousands of concentration camps all over Germany. They were not just in Poland. Um, that's where the death camps were. And uh, millions of people were forced, Jews and, well, um, in the end, not so many Jews, but um, political prisoners and Russian prisoners of war were forced to do slave labor under terrible conditions. They were tortured. Um, many, many of them died. And, um, you know, plantation is a form of concentration camp. I mean, that's what we're celebrating when we... I mean, I love the uh, live oaks as much as anybody does. I don't know if you've been to the been to the South. There's something very haunting about live oaks, but um, you don't have to go to a plantation to see the live oaks. There's some wonderful ones in the uh, Louis Armstrong Park in New Orleans if you want to have your fill of live oak. Um, so last thing... But this is now a subject of conversation, and it wasn't. Um, you know, it, uh, plantations were places to hold wedding, um, wedding ceremonies or stay at a bed and breakfast. <clears throat> I knew that I was going to have to write a chapter in this book on reparations, and I left it next to last because I really wasn't sure what I thought um, but if any of you here, or those of you who are writers here, will know that you often write to figure out what you think. And I, I was very much of two minds because um, several people who I take very seriously, also African-American scholars like Cornel West and Adolf Reed, had come out very strongly against reparations. They were arguing that we really need social democracy and uh, reparations muddies the picture. Well, I'm in favor of social democracy, too. I am fortunate to live on a, comp a continent where uh, things like health care and education and uh, uh, parental leave and vacations and labor uh, rights are considered to be uh, rights and not benefits, and that makes all the difference in the world in how they're treated. So I would be in favor of uh, social democracy in this country myself. Um, Bernie Sanders is actually to the right of uh, Angela Merkel. Seriously, and Angela Merkel is a conservative government. But her, uh, you know, the social policy is just people have become so... Um, deeply convinced that uh, these things are matters of rights, uh, that it 
it goes quite a bit farther than any American politician would dream of suggesting. But I started thinking, so what if, as a thought experiment, um, a Holocaust survivor who chose to stay in Germany, and some did, not very many, but some did, would have the same social rights as any other German, wouldn't we think they were owed more? And I decided uh, I have to argue for the justice of reparations to African Americans. I don't have a better plan than anybody else does about exactly how it's supposed to work. I think this is something that uh, economists and working together perhaps with philosophers and other people need to work out. But when I wrote that chapter last August, I thought, oh boy, have you gone out on a limb? Um, it's you and Ta-Nehisi Coates <laughs> and you know, people who have been reading this so far and saying, okay, she's got a point, maybe we need to do things. Oh, no, no, now she's gone too far. I didn't dream that uh, we would, in half a year, have five presidential candidates discussing the subject or that the House would finally, after refusing to do it for 30 years, hold hearings on the fact. And again, I think all of this is really, uh, you know, this is the silver lining in this horrible presidency that Americans really are coming to terms. Um, We've got a long way to go, but I think people are open. Before we talk about what needs to be done in this country in the long run, Um, I want to talk about what needs to be done right now. I think we will be processing and atoning for the Trump presidency as the sort of, you know, the end point of a horrible history. Uh, We'll be processing it for some time. But there's something we have to do first. Uh, I'm assuming that but I'm happy to explain if you don't, especially the younger people. Is there are there people here who don't know what Freedom Summer was, or what um, James Cheney Andrew or who James Cheney Andrew Goodman and Mickey Schwerner were? I'm glad you all know. Ah, you don't all know. Okay, so really briefly, um, it in the um, in the early '60s, a brilliant community organizer who also happened to study philosophy at Harvard (laughs) and was um, Barack Obama's inspiration for going into community organizing, um, named Bob Moses, decided it's fine to um, desegregate lunch counters and forms of transportation, but what really needs to happen is to make sure that African Americans in the South are voting because there's a huge population who have been intimidated um, and uh, aren't registered to vote. And there's a whole series of practices that are, um, um, you know, not just prejudice. They're state-sponsored ways in which uh, African Americans are prevented from voting. So Moses leaves Harvard and goes to uh, Mississippi, which he called the heart of the iceberg, And he begins trying to encourage community leaders, brave people in the field to register to vote. Um, They get beaten to the point of being crippled. Several of them are murdered. And Moses is feeling quite horrible about all the campaign for the voter registration drive has brought is death and terror to African-American families. So he has this idea of Freedom Summer, which is, was that you know, if a thousand white college students come down from other places, and I know some of them came from California, uh, if a thousand white college students come down to register voters, surely um, people, the nation's eyes will be focused on this problem and surely the Klan won't dare to kill them. In fact, they did. They killed um, Andrew Goodman, was a New York Jewish college student, 20 years old, on his very first day 
in Mississippi, and he was murdered along with James Cheney, a local young African-American, and um, Michael Schwerner, who had uh, finished college and had gone down a little earlier than the rest of the students. And um, I asked because I was dismayed recently at how few young people under 35 or so um, actually know um, who these people were. Because I grew up in the South, they were my heroes. I was too young to uh, join Freedom Summer, but gosh, do I wish I had been there. And uh, I've been shocked recently to see how their memory has been forgotten. But I am simply throwing out that the most important thing that college students and young people can do for the next year is to fight voter suppression. Because the Republicans will not win um, unless they continue to manage to suppress uh, poor and minority voters now, this was an idea that came to me if, okay, my people are reading my book, what, is there something I can use if I have a platform? Um, and I don't yet have, I'm just throwing it out to everybody I talk to. I did find out there is an uh, Andrew Goodman Foundation that his parents founded that is exactly devoted to this, and people like uh, Bob Moses is actually, and Harry Belafonte are on the board. Um, so there is an organization if you're interested. I am working on uh, doing what I can to support them and further that and see what other kinds of initiatives, because a lot of my friends in this country teach on college campuses where they complain to me. The students care about social justice, but they're often focused on niche campus questions. Um, and those are important questions. I don't mean to denigrate them, but they're not urgent. And what is urgent is um, to do this. Brian Stevenson uh, said something very uh, moving to me when I was interviewing him. He said, um, it's very important that we remember the terror, that we remember the murders and the lynchings, but we also need to remember our heroes. He said there are white Southerners who were against slavery and against lynching, and you don't know their names. And it's really important that we know their names. And this is the other thing, you know, if you're thinking about new understandings of our national history, people like the Newt Gingrichs of the world who say it's going to tear up our national fabric and we won't have anything to be proud of and we won't have any national identity, well, we can rewrite a new one. Um, Obama did give um, the families of these three uh, heroes uh, posthumously the, the um, Medal of Freedom, but by starting a voter drive, what we're both doing is remembering genuine American heroes, people who were stood up and gave their lives for another vision of America. Please join me to thank Susan Neiman for a very stimulating talk.